you've probably heard this statement before, but let me say it. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is the tragic summary statement that we are given at the end of the book of Judges, which is one of the darkest periods in Israel's history. It is a statement of societal chaos, a statement of spiritual confusion, everybody deciding that they are going to live according to their own individual moral code. So if you can convince yourself it's okay to sleep around, go ahead. If you can justify your need to steal from others, then we won't get in your way. Does that sound familiar? We live today in a day that is chaotic and confused as well. And what humanity needs right now more than ever is an authoritative revelation about what is good and righteous from the one who made us and the one who will someday judge us. But here's the question. If humanity were willing to do that, willing to embrace such a revelation of God, where would they look? How can a a, a finite man find a being who is as transcendent as God is? How How does that happen? Well, he can't, not on his own. The only way it's possible to know the full truth about God is if is if he reveals himself to us. And the good news this morning is he has. We know he has. Now, flip the script here. If you were an enemy of God, what would you do to keep people from finding this God and from knowing him? Does the devil walk in the front door of the church and try to disrupt Sunday worship? Not usually. He's more crafty than that. What he does is he works on undermining the revelation of God in the world. If he can undermine what God has shown us in the hearts of men and women, he can prevent them from coming to saving faith. So that's what he does. He gives people a justification for denying God's existence. He attacks the biblical account of creation. He pushes materialism and evolution. He undermines trust in religious texts calling into question everything from ancient history. He tries to water down and confuse the definition of sin and remove any sense that any of us will be accountable someday for our actions. He will try to put doubt and suspicion of religion into the mainstream and try to tell people that science is the only trustworthy source for true reality. In fact, he will attack the whole idea of whether there's truth at all. And he will promote relativism as a tool of human self-empowerment. We see him working, don't we? All around us in our society today. He is working. We're not blind to it. Our spiritual enemy knows that if he can drive us away from God's revelation of himself, then he can continue to blind the eyes of those who are lost and are already alienated from the Creator because of sin. Well, David had a few things to say about this subject 3,000 years ago about how God reveals himself and also how the fact that God has revealed himself, how that should impact our lives. So if you haven't, grab your Bible. Let's turn to Psalm 19. If you're joining us here for the first time or you're back from summer vacation, we are in the Psalms. And no, we're not doing all 150. We are choosing specific themes as we go along. But Psalm 19, in my opinion, is beautiful enough to just stand on its own. Let's just walk through the beauty of this psalm. C.S. Lewis, who knew something about good writing, said of this psalm, it's the greatest poem in the entire book of Psalms. 
He said it's one of the greatest lyrics written in the history of the world. And that's what's before us this morning, the very Word of God. Psalm 19 is also, by the way, a favorite of preachers because of the way it's laid out. See, one of the big challenges when you're preaching is every week to go to the text and then to create an outline that is both true to the text, so I can explain the text to you, but also it's winsome in the sense that I can present it to you with an outline that's going to draw you in. Well, David does all the hard work for the preacher in this particular psalm because it seems that he writes with a clear outline in his head. So he systematically walks us through what I would call three sections or three books that God has authored in order to reveal himself to us, the book of nature, the book of scripture, and then the book of humanity. So we're going to walk through those three sections in this psalm this morning. Let's start where David starts in the book of nature in verses 1 through 6. Now, like many of David's psalms, there is no historical context uh, shown to us in the title or superscription of the psalm. And there's nothing internally in the poem itself that tells us specifically when David wrote this or what was going on in his life. But you have to imagine that he wrote this psalm after one of those nights where he was just out enjoying the beauty of God's creation, gazing up into the sky and seeing God in everything before his eyes. Because look how he starts in verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Your translation may say, the heavens declare the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. What a beautiful statement. Uh, have you ever had one of those nights where you feel like that's, that's happening to you? Something that looks like that? Have you ever had a night like that? Maybe you're out camping. This happens when you camp, right? Uh, or you're, you're sitting on a beach somewhere, or maybe you've hiked to the top of a mountain. Maybe you're just out in your backyard, and for some reason your eyes are drawn to the sky, and you look around, right? And it's one of those nights where the weather is just perfect. There's a crisp in the air. There's a gentle breeze blowing, and you look up. And, and sometimes on a really clear night, it feels like the stars, they look brighter than, than usual, right? And they look so close that you can reach out and grab one, and it takes your breath away. I think that's what David was dealing with as he sat down to write this psalm. And as you look from one side of the sky to the other, I don't know if you've ever done this, you know, you look from one side to the other and you see the vastness of it all and you see the splendor of the universe above. And then you realize, you try to remember back to your eighth grade science class, right, where you learned about the Milky Way. Now we know there's 200 to 300 billion stars in the Milky Way, our galaxy. Yet each one is arranged by God in perfect order, no confusion. And then God has seen fit to give us this one moon, right? This one moon, 250,000 miles away, as it orbits around us perfectly, waxing and waning as it reflects the light of the sun. And you're like, that's amazing. And here's the thing. Those planetary objects, they've always been there. They're always there. But on a night like that, you really take notice of it. And you say to yourself, wow, God, you are glorious. You are, you're so powerful and so awesome. You're so immeasurable. And you think about these things, right? And then maybe it hits you. You're like, why do I take all this for granted? Why do I go through my days without ever considering the universe that I live in? I ignorantly trust that every force necessary to sustain my life on this spinning ball we call the earth is going to remain stable and constant. And I don't think twice about it. And then you stop long enough and you look and you begin to see how finely tuned it is and how perfectly it all works together. And if you're smart, you'll chuckle to yourself and think, 
You know what? There's actually people out there that look up and see this and think it happened by random chance. That that just happened randomly. It's amazing. Somehow they can't see that everything above them is, is like a giant canvas that God uses to declare his majesty. I read something this week. Somebody made a great point. They said, if the stars only came out once every hundred years or a thousand years, every person on the earth would come out to see that on that one night because it's, it's so spectacular. And yet they're there every single night. Every single night. And it's rare that we take the time to notice. It's kind of sad. And then if you really want to connect with what's going on up there, you think beyond this universe, beyond what we can see, which, by the way, is, is already too vast and big to fathom. Get this. The Milky Way is said to be 600 quadrillion miles across. Quadrillion is past the trillion. So it's, it's one with 15 zeros times 600. That's how big our galaxy is. But there are likely billions of other galaxies out there as big, if not bigger, than ours. And each of them would then likely have hundreds of billions of stars in them. Here's the point. Our God, Yahweh, the author of that book that is in your lap right now, think about this. He brought all of that into existence out of nothing. That book in your lap or in your hand right now, the author of that book did all of that from nothing just by commanding it to be so. So what does that tell you about our God? And how often do we think about that? And then you go a step further. The fact that in the midst of that vastness, he willingly chooses to engage with what he has made on this relatively tiny dot of a planet in the middle of nowhere, really. And not only that, he's aware of us. That, that God, that giant, vast, big, powerful, majestic God knows your name, knows how many hairs are on, the, on your head. That's how intimately he knows you. What does this tell us about God? This is what David, I think, is dealing with in these opening verses to say, wow. So we shouldn't take it for granted. He goes on in verse 2. It says, day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals or communicates knowledge. So we know this is true, right? Because we live in this, in this universe. Day and night, day and night, over and over again like clockwork. And David looks up, ancient man, right? He looks up and he sees these luminaries in the sky and he notices how they perform their daily revolutions flawlessly over and over again. And as they do so, he says, they communicate information to those of us down below on the earth. They're communicating knowledge to us. And listen, in a culture like ancient Israel, where your entire life depended upon those cycles, the weather to grow your crops, this meant everything. That's part of our problem as modern people. We don't depend on it so much. We're just concerned when it gets really hot. <laughs> or, 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 oh, it's raining in Southern California. For David, God was shouting to him from the sky. In both the sunshine and in the rain clouds, and in helping their crops to grow. And then when night came, it was the nightscape that spoke to him. But for him, it was this continual chorus of God's glory. Now, the Hebrew term that David uses here for pours forth is interesting. It, it has the image literally of a gushing spring that just overflows, it, it cannot be contained. 
So in this psalm, it means that the heavens gush forth and overflow with continual revelation of the Creator, and this happens each and every day. More and more knowledge of who He is is coming at us all of the time. And that's an important thing to see here. The same thing that David says was happening in front of him 3,000 years ago is still happening today. It's presently happening. The heavens are declaring. The expanse is declaring. The day pours forth. The night reveals knowledge. All of it is happening in the present. But we take it for granted, don't we? I don't know how many times a day I look at my weather app. It, it, it hit me this week. Look, when, you, when you're preparing a sermon, the, the text smacks you in the face, and it, it, it creates frustrations. You're like, oh, how, how, how have I missed this? And I've got to preach about it on Sunday. I allow Google and the Weather Channel to tell me about what I need to know about what's going on, rather than looking up and seeing and hearing this knowledge that God is communicating to me. And I can tell you, preparing this sermon has caused me to think differently about this. Spurgeon talked about it in his day. And the description he gave, I think, really helped. It helped me. Maybe it'll help you to think more meaningfully about this creation. Look what he writes. He says, day bids us labor. Night reminds us to prepare for our last home. Day bids us to work for God. Night invites us to rest in him. Day bids us look for endless day, and night warns us to escape from everlasting night. It's beautiful. Tucked out away for future use, right? When you see the day and the night, and you just forget about it and take it for granted. So here's the thing. The canon of Scripture is closed. There is no new written revelation coming our way, but the revelation of Yahweh continu continues each and every day. He is preaching to us every day through nature. So we can have a, a firsthand experience of him every single day. I don't know about you, but are there times in your life, and maybe you just need to be more aware of it, when you, when you notice nature? It, it, here's when it happens for me. I'm driving out of Castaic, heading towards town. This is called town. When you're in Castaic, this is town. And I'm heading south down the five, and ahead of me are these hills, right? I mean, I, I don't think we can call them mountains, but they're hills. And especially in winter after the rains when it's beautifully green, and I'm blown away by the way God has shaped it all. Or I'm driving back home, even more so at dusk when the sun is setting and there's a cloud formation in the sky, and it just smacks me in the face. And guys, all we have to do is notice it, as David did, that God is speaking to us from the heavens. I know a lot of in our church, you guys, you guys like to hike and climb. God bless you for that. I don't quite understand hiking. <laughs> But okay, unless there's food at the end, I don't know. But listen, when you hike and when you climb, are you paying attention to the details around you? Are you taking it in? I think that's important. Now, look at verses 3 and 4. David gives us even more detail. He says, listen, there's no speech, he says, from the heavens. There are no words. Their voice is not heard, and, and, and we affirm that, right? It's a silent witness. There's nothing audible coming from the skies. But the message comes to us anyway. Verse 4 says, their line, and that's a kind of a strange translation. The Hebrew word here refers to a measuring device. So David's referring to how the message of Yahweh in creation goes out in a measurable distance. And what is that distance? It says, their line has gone out through all the earth. 
and their utterances or their words to the end of the world. So the natural revelation of God has reached to every nook and cranny on creation on the earth, right? It's everywhere, and that means it's reached every single person. And because it's not audible, it doesn't require a single language. Isn't that beautiful? You don't have to speak this language or that language to understand the message. You don't have to be educated. You don't even have to be literate to see God's speaking through nature. So if anybody does choose to ignore God, it's not because they don't have sufficient evidence for him. It's all around them. We know the reason people don't acknowledge a creator, it's a moral issue. It's a spiritual issue. It's not intellectual. Paul talked about it in Romans 1, right? They suppress the truth of what they see around them in unrighteousness. They suppress it. They squash it. They push it aside in their unrighteousness. And then he goes on. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have clearly been seen. Clearly. Being understood through what has been made so that they, all of humanity, are without excuse. So the evidence is there. It is always there. Right in front of men and women. The problem is we don't want to submit to a creator. We want to be our own Lord. And so human beings suppress the plain truth about what they see. And then they go out and they, they find ways to justify themselves. They grasp onto irrational theories about how all of this came into being. Right? Irrational theories about how it's, it's somehow randomly designed and ordered as it is. Or how it's being sustained, how it's constant and trustworthy. They come up with all these ideas, but it is a coping mechanism. They are actively suppressing what is obvious. Obvious. The late Robert Jastrow, who was an astronomer and planetary physicist, in other words, a really smart guy, and also a Christian, said this with tongue-in-cheek. Maybe you've seen this quote before. It's great. He said, For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story for him ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> That's great. Because God has told us the truth about it, from the beginning, we just have to stop suppressing that truth. Now, David continues in verse 4, and now he focuses on the sun, right? If you weren't aware, what is the sun? The sun is, the sun is really a nearby star. It's a yellow dwarf star. I found that out last night. <laughs> Apparently, there's much bigger, different colored stars. This is a nearby yellow. It seems pretty big to me. It's 100 times larger than the earth but it's a dwarf star. Again, think about God when you think about that. Verse 4, In them, the heavens, he, God, has placed a tent for the sun, which as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, it rejoices as a strong man or an athlete to run its course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now this... This makes total sense considering the context here. Ancient people worshiped the sun. You can go through all through history, Sumerians, Egyptians, Romans, um, the Plains Indians, the Aztecs. All throughout history, people groups have looked up into the sky and they have worshiped this object that they saw every day and they understood that it had life-giving properties. And so they worshiped it. 
And here in verse 4, David doesn't have technology to understand how planetary objects operate. He poetically describes the course of the sun as a circuit. He observes that the sun goes away at night. And he surmises, that again, poetically, that it goes into some type of tent or tabernacle. And then in the morning, it bursts forth like that excited groom on his wedding day, full of excitement, full of love, full of joy. Guys, you remember that? Married guys? Right? And aren't you glad that this planetary circuit happens every day? Aren't you glad? What if it wasn't being sustained by a power greater than mankind and we had to fix it? Talk about your climate change. We would instantly melt or instantly freeze if God didn't sustain it. But David noticed this. The most important thing to note here is this particular star, the sun, that has been providentially given to us to, as part of what God does to sustain light and life. It operates as an obedient servant to Yahweh. The sun, this massive thing, operates as an obedient servant. In fact, Hebrews 1 tells us that it is uniquely sustained by God the Son, who sustains all things by the word of his power. And so the sun in the sky shouts to us that God is faithful, that he is consistent, that he is powerful, that he is radiant, and that he is filled with love and care for his creation. Now, at this point in the psalm, the question might be asked, okay, are we getting too close to worshiping the creation rather than the creator, right? Because Paul warns us about that in Romans 1. We cannot ever fall into the trap of viewing creation as the end in itself, right? The universe is wondrous, but only because it was made by his hands. By the way, John Piper describes this really well in a very practical way. Whoops. Oh, I had a picture. I had a picture for you, and I forgot. All right, take that in. Okay. Piper says this, the glory of creation and the glory of God, think about this, the glory of creation and the glory of God are as different as a love poem and the actual love. Right? The painting and the actual landscape, the ring and the marriage. And then this is a great statement. It would be a great folly and a great tragedy if a man loved his wedding band more than he loved his bride. And every woman said amen. So yeah, so we can't confuse the creation and the creator, right? When we look into the sky in one of those special nights and we take it in, we look beyond what we see to the source and the power behind it. So, so far in the psalm now, we've been outdoors looking at God's creation. David is now going to lead us inside and have us pick up a scroll. And we get to the second of these books, the book of Scripture in verses 7 through 10. Now, it's important as we do this to understand this principle. The evidence for God in creation is enough to remove man's excuse for not acknowledging him. But creation is not enough to save him. That principle has to be understood. In other words, it's sufficient to condemn, nature is, but not to redeem. Okay? For a man or woman to be born again to have their sins forgiven, to be justified in God's sight, more revelation, specific revelation is required. And that's why we can say with confidence, and this, this might blow your mind, as wonderful as nature is, you can look at all the pictures you want, as wonderful it is, when you compare it to that inspired word of God in your hands this morning, all that pales. 
What you have in your hands this morning, the very Word of God, not that physical Bible book, right? But the very Word of God is far more valuable than even the beauty of creation because it specifically tells us about the God who made everything. Does that make sense? Calvin once wrote this. He said, From nature, we know only the hands and feet of God, but from Scripture, we know His very heart. I think that's a really important statement. And that truth is actually reflected in the structure of the psalm. If you look back at verse 1, David refers to God as El in the Hebrew. It just says God, right, in the English Bible. That is the most generic term in the Hebrew language for God. And its root comes from this this word that it's power and strength. And that makes sense because he's talking about creation. But he he speaks of God in verse 1 as just this generic term. But from this point forward in the psalm, it changes. Now he's going to refer to God by his covenant personal name of Yahweh. You see it as Lord in capital letters in your text. Seven times in the last eight verses. So what David is doing is he transitions from one book to the next. He's ramping up the intimacy of God here. From the transcendent creator who is big and, and, and wow, right? To the imminent God, Yahweh, who engages with his people. This is the covenant God of Israel. He's not just known for his vastness and his power, but also for his steadfast love for his people. Amazing, right? Now, what we're about to read in the next three verses is a great example of what we talked about in our introduction, Hebrew parallelism. Okay, In verses 7 through 9, here's what David's going to do. Use six similar words to describe the word of God. And those words are followed by a series of very descriptive adjectives about the word. And those adjectives are then followed by a series of verbs that tell us how the word of God impacts the believer. It's very structurally beautiful. It basically says, this is what the Bible is, and this is what it does. Look at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord, testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart or making the heart glad. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Now, just to help you out, I've given you a grid on the screen that you can look at. The three different columns. You've got description of the word, the adjectives, and the verbs. Now, I'm not... I'm not going to take the time today to deal with the left-hand column. I think the best way to understand this is that David is using similar terms about the Word of God in a poetic fashion. I'm much more concerned about the adjectives that describe the Word of God and the column on the right, how that impacts us. So let's look at those adjectives real quick. The law of the Lord is perfect. The word means whole or complete. His Word that you have right now in your laps lacks nothing. It has no defects. It gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. The testimony of the Lord is sure, and that means it's reliable, it's certain. His word is our solid foundation, because catch this now, it does not change. And man, do we need that today. It is sure as a foundation for life, and it does not change. The precepts of the Lord are right, meaning they are correct or level. 
They map out for us a straight course as opposed to crookedness. The commandment of the Lord is pure, meaning it's entirely sincere. It will never lead you astray, never lead you away from God. The fear of the Lord is clean, which is a a word that may strike you as odd. It means free from impurity. His word will never fade. It will never corrode. It will never weaken in any way. The judgments of the Lord are true, meaning it's totally dependable. What God says is never false. It is never off the mark. In fact, His word is the standard for defining reality. Those are some powerful adjectives. Perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. Let's go on to the verbs then. This to me is the biggest takeaway. The perfect law of the Lord does what? Restores the soul. So David is now talking about all the ways that the word of God impacts our inner man. It restores us. It revives us. It refreshes us. It transforms us. He's talking about how it can bring new life to those who are lost or for the believer, how it can bring us back to God through confession and repentance. It restores us. The sure testimony of the Lord makes wise the simple. You know, a person can be really, really educated and still lack wisdom, right? It reminds me, maybe you heard this quote, Albert Einstein, pretty smart guy, once said, I'd be happier if we had scientists with less brains and more wisdom. The Hebrew concept of wise is very important. It's the idea of, it's the art of living in submission to Yahweh that brings about true prosperity and joy. Living wisely is an art form, but it starts with living according to God's will and submission to Him. As David says, a simple person, I always love how you know, God, God looks down and, and, and the, the, proud, the, the person that's so smart is so proud, right? And God says, look, I love simple people. <laughs> I love, I love the, the heart of a child, You don't have to be educated, right? In fact, some of the least educated people are the wisest people. Oftentimes, because all they do is they read the scripture and they believe it and they trust it and they apply it. It makes wise the simple. The right precepts of the Lord rejoice the heart. Now, this is something David understood very personally, right? That the word can be a great comfort to bring joy to the heart. When you go through the trials that David went through, The difficulties, right? The adversity, the pain, the discouragement. He had to deal with so much of that as king, but he was always able to come back to God's word and have his joy restored. Man, it is, when I I hear people, hey, I'm struggling right now. I'm, I'm discouraged and I'm suffering. And I know they're looking for a word of encouragement for me and I give it to them, but really I want them to go to the word because that's where they're going to be rejoiced in the heart. The pure commandment of the Lord enlightens the eyes. And don't we all need to see well in this fallen world right now? To see clearly? And the word gave David this light that he needed to guide his steps, to to keep him from sin. And here we see this inseparable link between the mind-informing work of the word and the eye-opening work of the spirit and how they work together. Now, you look at that list, and, and seriously, Ask yourself, why do I not read God's word? Why would I not take every opportunity to not just check a box and read a few verses in the morning, but to dive in and dig deeply into it if if it's going to do that for your life? 
Why would we not? I mean, we want to be refreshed, right? And revived and restored. We want to grow in wisdom, don't we? We all say that. We want to experience true joy in our hearts. We want to be guided, our steps to be guided by the Spirit. Then you can't neglect time in the Word. Because those things don't happen magically. Sometimes we think magically in the church. Somehow, by some osmosis or something, it's just going to seep into our hearts. No, we have to open the Word of God. So then in verse 9, David gives us two inherent qualities of God's Word. You see there, right? Number one, it endures forever, and it's altogether righteous. And for those reasons, for all of this, then in verse 10, David makes this beautifully poetic statement that is so beautiful. He says, They, the words of the Lord, are more desirable than gold. Yes, even more than fine gold or pure gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And and see, God gave you that, you foodies. He gave you that, right? (laughs) He was like, ah, the gold gold analogy is pretty strong for most people. But for you foodies, right, Grant? (laughs) Sweeter than honey and the dripping straight off the honeycomb. Don't forget, David was a wealthy man in his day, right? He was a very wealthy man, yet there was nothing, nothing that he possessed that outweighed the value of God's word in his heart. He had a throne, he had a palace, he had wives, he had an army, he had respect from other kings and nations in the ancient Near East, but ultimately he knew those things were not going to satisfy him. And they had zero value in the life to come because we don't take our stuff into eternity. So yes, again, logically think this through. Of course, when you consider temporal things and eternal things, of course, the word is far more valuable than even the purest gold. It has to be sweeter than anything that you can eat. The question is, is that how we view our Bibles? Take a step back. Is that how we view our Bibles. This is a true statement. When, when things become common and accessible, we are tempted to downgrade their value and to take them for granted. And here in the West, in 2023, we have unprecedented access to God's Word. And so many of our Bibles go untouched. It's just too easy. But consider a born-again man or woman who lives and operates within an underground church in, say, a place like Iran or China, if they had your Bible in their language, in their hands, that would be the greatest treasure in their life. It would be the greatest treasure they possess. So we as Americans have to, we have to get over that, right? We have to realize, we have to come back to treasuring God's word and acknowledging its value and its sweetness in our life and that it's, the promise is it's going to do these things for us as we imbibe it. Amen? Now, all this beautiful language about the revelation of God and nature and the Word, it is leading somewhere. It's leading towards self-examination and prayer. So David has examined the book of nature, right? What we call general revelation of God. He's looked at the book of Scripture, which is the specific revelation of Yahweh. And those things became a mirror for him. He's like, okay, I see God here. I see God here. And that's a mirror that's being held up to me. And so he has to look in that mirror, as we all do. Okay, this is who God is. This is who I am. Uh Uh-oh. 
And the word is, it's living and active, right? We believe that in Scripture. It's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces us as far as the division of soul and spirit. It gets between our joints and our marrow. And it's able to judge the thoughts and intention of a man's heart. So what David does next is he opens up the third book, the book of humanity. Now that we've seen God in creation, now that we've seen him in his word, oh boy, here we go. What about me in light of all that? Look at verse 11. Two critical things. He says, Moreover, by them, by the word of the Lord, your servant is warned, that's number one, warned, and in keeping them there is great reward, that's number two. So let's acknowledge that God's word is confrontational. It can be abrasive at times. Yeah, we know Scripture, as there are many places in Scripture we can go to for encouragement, but the Word is not, is not designed to flatter us, right? To flatter us or to communicate some false idea that we're okay on our own or that we're in good standing with God in our sinful condition. It doesn't prop us up like we'd like it to, to say, oh, everything's okay. God's Word warns us, David says. It warns us of a whole bunch of things. Listen to me now. This is important. Like a good father, it warns us for our own good. Every father, even mother, we know this, right? You warn your children because you love them. Don't touch the stove. Don't run out into the street. Oh, but you're restricting me. No, I love you. It warns us. It warns us what to expect as we live in this fallen world. So we shouldn't be surprised. It warns us that we are inherently corrupt in our flesh and that we stand guilty before a holy God. That's, that's just a brute fact. That's who we are. It warns us that if our sin problem isn't addressed and remedied, that what will follow is condemnation and judgment because of God's perfect standard of justice. It warns us of temptations that are going to come at us and says, stay alert. Because sin is always crouching at the door and it seeks to swallow you up. So it warns us. And it warns us of our obligations to a gracious Savior who is willing to sacrifice his own life as a substitute for ours. It warns us of all these things. Question, do you appreciate those warnings? Or do they irritate you? Do you, are, you are you glad for those warnings? Or, do they, or does that just, it just chafes against you like, I don't want to hear that? That's an important thing to ask. David's counsel here is not only appreciate these warnings, but embrace them. Why? Because in embracing those, in living according to God's will, there is great reward, he says in verse 11. Do we believe that? Do, uh, seriously now, don't say it out loud, but answer that question in your heart. Do you believe that obedience is a great reward? Because that's the promise we're given here. We've got to believe that it's true. And when we discover that it is true, the satisfaction that we have in abiding with Christ is beyond anything that you can experience in this life. We have to believe that that's true. When you are in a place where you are walking in obedience with the Lord, when you are enjoying intimate fellowship with Him through the Word, through prayer, and you have a sense of blessing in your life from Him, that is a great reward. That is the reward that is being promised here. It's, it's fellowship with the living God who is so big and so vast that he can make all of these universes by speaking a word. That is the reward. 
And when we're there and we, we, we embrace that and we're abiding with Christ and we have that reward, it's what prevents us from being enticed by temporal pleasures. Because they don't, because when we look at them and go, I have this, I look at that, that, that is nothing. I'm not even enticed by that anymore. See, the challenge for us is to start preferring righteousness. Why? Because the payoff from sin just doesn't look attractive anymore because of this blessing I have in fellowship with the Lord. That's what David's talking about here. There's a great reward with this. Now, the rest of the psalm, these last three verses, this is David's personal prayer request that he's laying before Yahweh. What he wants to do is to face his sins, face them, and to call out to God for help. So look, these verses are a fantastic model for all of us in our prayer lives. Verse 12, David says, Who can discern his errors? Acquit me or cleanse me of hidden faults. That first phrase basically means this. Who is able to perceive his unintentional sins? Who is able to do that? So David understood that his disobedience extended to things that he wasn't aware of. He, they just, he just didn't know. And that's true of us too, because sin is so much more a part of us than we even realize. We sin without knowing about it. So David wisely prays, Lord, cleanse me from those things that I'm not aware of that are displeasing in your sight. And more than that, by your spirit, make them known to me so that I can confess and repent of them. That's a really good model for prayer for us as well. Amen? Now in verse 13, David brings us something much more serious. Also, he says, keep back your servant from presumptuous or willful sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted or cleansed of great transgression. What does it mean? We should be able to define this. What does it mean to sin presumptuously? What does it mean? It's the attitude that says, I know what the Bible says, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do, and I don't fear the consequences. That's what that means. So it's, it's rebellion. And, and yes, believers can get to this place if we're not careful. In a sense, when we do this, we become practical atheists. Because we know God exists, but we're just going to act like he doesn't. And the folly, of course, is that, of course, he sees it all. He actually, long before you sinned, he knew it was in your heart. So it's folly. And listen, I'm just going gonna, gonna, gonna to give you a warning. It's a miserable place to be for a believer. It's miserable. Trying to straddle two worlds where you think you can serve two masters. Trying to worship God on some days, but really only with half a heart. And then all the other days embracing the world and then having to fight off the shame that comes with knowing you've broken fellowship with your Savior. Living in those two worlds is the most miserable place for a Christian. Don't do it. Don't do it. And so David knew he was susceptible to this. So he prays. We're all susceptible to this, right? Of, of committing willful sins. And maybe you can testify about a time in your life. I can. When you allowed sins to progress too far in your life. It started as a passing temptation. And then you let it 
rattle around in your head. It became an obsessive thought. And that thought then led to planning out your sin and looking for opportunity to sin. And then you acted upon it. And you thought, oh, I didn't get a thunderbolt from the sky. So I repeated it. And I repeated it. And that repetition turned into a habit. And that habit became an idol that demanded to be served. And boom, you were a slave. That's how it works. And all along that process, this is what David's worried about in his own life. And David's a pretty godly man. So we should, we should take notice. All along, Spirit was convicting your heart of that sin and was giving you a way of escape. But sometimes, friends, we willfully choose to ignore it. And so David asks the Lord, keep back your servant from this. And then he goes a step further, and this is such an important prayer. Let this not rule over me. Let it not have dominion over me. What an important prayer this is. Lord, I don't want to become a slave to something that is an affront to you and destructive in my life. Because both of those, both of those things are true. When we get into willful sin, it is an affront to the Lord first and foremost, but it is also self-destructive. There are ripple effects of sin. And so David appeals in prayer. Guys, we have to do this. We sing a song here at Oak Hill called Judge of the Secrets, right? And how does it go? So, Lord, here is my heart. I will not run. I will not hide. That is an important principle. It does you no good to run and hide from the Lord. Come and deal with your sin honestly and openly before the one who loves you. Appeal to God. But listen also, friends, don't miss the connection here with God's word in the text here. Because typically when a believer falls into willful sin, into idolatry, it coincides with two things. Number one, a pulling away from the fellowship in the body. And number two, a lack of meditation and study in God's word. Those are the symptoms. And listen, our elder team, we're aware of that as, as we're always praying for you guys as our members. Just are, are, is somebody pulling away from the body? What's happening there? We need to check that out. So, Study and meditation of the word. There's a uh, story of an, uh, an African convert. 150 years ago, a missionary had reached this faraway tribe in Africa. And this, this lovely man was right before his death. He said to the missionary, after he'd been a believer for decades, he said, he pointed to his one copy of the scriptures that the tribe shared. And he said, that is the fountain where I drink and that is the oil that makes my lamp burn. That needs to be us. And so the psalm has run its glorious course, right? Now, I haven't forgotten verse 14, but we're going to pray that in just a moment because it's such an important prayer. But I want you to think about, again, the way that David has laid this beautiful poem out. The glory of God in creation, the glory of God in his written word to us, and then the glory of God in his personal and intimate dealings with those he loves. That's us. The book of nature, the book of scripture, the book of humanity. How thankful are you that God has revealed himself to us? Because listen, he wasn't under an obligation to do that. He was not obligated to show himself to you or to me or to make a way for us to be saved. We don't deserve that grace, but he has shown it to us anyway. And for us now, now that we've seen the truth, there is nothing the devil can do to blunt the force 
of God's revelation in our lives. Nothing. We see it every day in the heavens. We ought to look at it every day in the Word. Amen? And together, we will continue to believe, continue to worship, continue to live in love by the power of God's Spirit until Christ returns or calls us home. That's our mission. Let's bow our heads. We're going to pray the Psalms together here, especially verse 14. And as I lead us in this, I'm going to make it personal, but listen, I want you, if you agree with what I'm about to pray, make it personal to you. And be authentic about it. God sees your heart. So if you agree with this, then pray it in your life. Let's go to prayer. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I concur with David this morning, Lord, as I cry out to you that you are my rock of strength and you are my redeemer, the only one who saves. And without you, I would have no hope in this life and certainly no hope in the life to come. And like David, Lord, I humbly surrender my mouth to you, my heart to you. May my thoughts and my words and my deeds bring you glory rather than being a reproach to your good name. Lord, I praise you for the glorious work of your hands in creation. May it always cause me to stand in awe of you every time I look up. And I praise you that you've not left me alone to figure out who you are and, and how I might be saved, but you have given me and given all of us a specific revelation of who you are through your inspired written word. Thank you for your grace in that. Lord, revive and transform me. Grant me greater wisdom in this life. Help me to have joy in my heart. And if I'm far from you, Lord, bring me back and cause me to have that joy once again. Enlighten my eyes, Lord, through the truth of your word. And Father, prevent me from becoming arrogant and presumptuous. Lord, prevent me from trusting in my own strength. Convict me by your spirit of the things in my life that I need to turn away from and repent of. And Lord, prevent me, prevent those sins from ruling over me. God, thank you for time in your word, the way it speaks to our hearts. Do a work in us, Lord, for your glory and for our good, we pray. 